Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me tonight. Tonight's author was born in Perth, Scotland, in 1875. He was many things in his life, a classicist at Oxford, a lawyer, government administrator in South Africa after the Boer War, a major contributor to The Spectator and The Times of London, Member of Parliament for the Scottish Universities, Chancellor of Edinburgh University, and in the last five years of his life, he was Governor-General of Canada. Somehow, along the way, he managed to publish over 100 books, including histories, biographies, and historical novels. It is, however, for his thrillers that he is chiefly remembered today. He was John Buchan, and if his name is not immediately familiar to you, you may remember his most famous thriller, The Thirty-Nine Steps, which has been filmed at least three times, most famously by Alfred Hitchcock in 1935. More recently, it has enjoyed renewed popularity as a widely performed tour-de-force stage play. His thrillers and short stories are all still in print. Here is one of them, a surprisingly humane portrait of the enemy from the First World War, written in the 1920s. The Loathly Opposite by John Buchan How loathly opposite I stood to his unnatural purpose. King Lear Berminster had been to a Guildhall dinner the night before, which had been attended by many, to him, unfamiliar celebrities. He had seen for the first time in the flesh people whom he had long known by reputation, and he declared that in every case the picture he had formed of them had been cruelly shattered. An eminent poet, he said, had looked like a starting-price bookmaker, and a financier of worldwide fame had been exactly like the music-master at his preparatory school. Wherefore, Berminster made the profound deduction that things were never what they seemed. "'That's only because you have a feeble imagination,' said Sandy Arbuthnot. "'If you had really understood Timpson's poetry, you would have realized that it went with close-cropped red hair and a fat body, and you should have known that Macintyre—this was the financier—had the music and metaphysics type of mind. That's why he puzzles the city so. If you understand a man's work well enough, you can guess pretty accurately what he'll look like. I don't mean the color of his eyes and his hair, but the general atmosphere of him. It was Sandy's agreeable habit to fling an occasional paradox at the table with the view of starting an argument. This time he stirred up Pugh, who had come to the war office from the Indian Staff Corps. Pugh had been a great figure in Secret Service work in the East, but he did not look the part, for he had the air of a polo-playing cavalry subaltern. The skin was stretched as tight over his cheekbones as over the knuckles of a clenched fist, and was so dark that it had the appearance of beaten bronze. He had black hair, rather beady black eyes, and the hooky nose which, in the Celt, often goes with that colouring. He was himself a very good refutation of Sandy's theory. "'I don't agree,' Pugh said, at least not as a general principle. One piece of humanity whose work I studied with the microscope for two aching years upset all my notions when I came to meet it. Then he told his story. When I was brought to England in November 17, and given a hushed department on three floors of an eighteenth-century house in a back street, I had a good deal to learn about my business. 
that I learned it in reasonable time was due to the extraordinarily fine staff that I found provided for me. Not one of them was a regular soldier. They were all educated men. They had to be in that job, but they came out of every sort of environment. One of the best was a Shetland Laird, another was an Admiralty Court K.C., and I had, besides, a metallurgical chemist, a golf champion, a leader writer, a popular dramatist, several actuaries, and an East End curate. None of them thought of anything but his job, and at the end of the war, when some ass proposed to make them OBEs, there was a very fair imitation of a riot. A more loyal crowd never existed, and they accepted me as their chief as unquestioningly as if I had been with them since 1914. To the war in the ordinary sense they scarcely gave a thought. You found the same thing in a lot of other behind-the-lines departments, and I dare say it was a good thing. It kept their nerves quiet and their minds concentrated. After all, our business was only to decode and decipher German messages. We had nothing to do with the use which was made of them. It was a curious little nest, and when the armistice came, my people were flabbergasted. They hadn't realized that their job was bound up with the war. The one who most interested me was my second-in-command, Philip Channel. He was a man of forty-three, about five foot four in height, weighing, I fancy, under nine stone, and almost as blind as an owl. He was good enough at papers with his double glasses, but he could hardly recognize you three yards off. He had been a professor at some Midland college, mathematics or physics, I think, and as soon as the war began he tried to enlist. Of course, they wouldn't have him. He was about E5 in any physical classification, besides being well over age. But he would take no refusal, and presently he worried his way into the government service. Fortunately, he found a job which he could do superlatively well, for I do not believe there was a man alive with more natural genius for cryptography. I don't know if any of you have ever given your mind to that heartbreaking subject. Anyhow, you know that secret writing falls under two heads, codes and ciphers, and that codes are combinations of words and ciphers of numerals. I remember how one used to be told that no code or cipher which was practically useful was really undiscoverable, and in a sense that is true, especially of codes. A system of communication which is in constant use must obviously not be too intricate, and a working code, if you get long enough for the job, can generally be read. That is why a code is periodically changed by the users. There are rules in worrying out the permutations and combinations of letters in most codes, for human ingenuity seems to run in certain channels, and a man who has been a long time at the business gets surprisingly clever at it. You begin by finding out a little bit, and then empirically building up the rules of decoding, till in a week or two you get the whole thing. Then, when you are happily engaged in reading enemy messages, the code is changed suddenly, and you have to start again from the beginning. You can make a code, of course, that is simply impossible to read except by accident, the key to which is a page of some book, for example, but fortunately that kind is not of much general use. Well, we got on pretty well with the codes, and read the intercepted enemy messages, cables, and wireless with considerable ease and precision. It was mostly diplomatic stuff and not very important. The more valuable stuff was in cipher, and that was another pair of shoes. 
With a code you can build up the interpretation by degrees, but with a cipher you either know it or you don't. There are no halfway houses. A cipher, since it deals with numbers, is a horrible field for mathematical ingenuity. Once you have written out the letters of a message in numerals, there are many means by which you can lock it and double-lock it. The two main devices, as you know, are transposition and substitution, and there is no limit to the ways one or the other can be used. There is nothing to prevent a cipher having a double meaning produced by two different methods, and as a practical question you have to decide which meaning is intended. By way of an extra complication, too, the message, when deciphered, may turn out to be itself in a difficult code. I can tell you our job wasn't exactly a rest cure. Burminster, looking puzzled, inquired as to the locking of ciphers. It would take too long to explain. Roughly, you write out a message horizontally in numerals. Then you pour it into vertical columns, the number and order of which are determined by a keyword. Then you write out the contents of the columns horizontally, following the lines across. To unlock it, you have to have the key word so as to put it back into the vertical columns and then into the original horizontal form. Burminster cried out like one in pain. It can't be done. Don't tell me that any human brain could solve such an acrostic. It was frequently done, said Pugh. By you? Lord bless me, not by me. I can't do a simple crossword puzzle. By my people. Give me the trenches, said Burminster in a hollow voice. Give me the trenches any day. Do you seriously mean to tell me that you could sit down before a muddle of numbers and travel back the way they had been muddled to an original that made sense? I couldn't, but Channel could, in most cases. You see, we didn't begin entirely in the dark. We already knew the kind of intricacies the enemy favored, and the way we worked was by trying a variety of clues till we lit on the right one. Well, I'm blessed. Go on about your man Channel. "'This isn't Channel's story,' said Pugh. "'He only comes into it accidentally. "'There was one cipher which always defeated us, "'a cipher used between the German general staff "'and their forces in the East. "'It was a locked cipher, "'and Channel had given more time to it "'than to any dozen of the others, "'for it put him on his mettle. "'But he confessed himself absolutely beaten. "'He wouldn't admit that it was insoluble, "'but he declared that he would need a bit of real luck to solve it. I asked him what kind of luck, and he said, a mistake and a repetition. That, he said, might give him a chance of establishing equations. We call this particular cipher P-Y, and we hated it poisonously. We felt like pygmies battering at the base of a high stone tower. Dislike of the thing soon became dislike of the man who had conceived it. Channel and I used to, I won't say amuse, for it was too dashed serious, but torment ourselves by trying to picture the fellow who owned the brain that was responsible for P.Y. We had a pretty complete dossier of the German intelligence staff, but of course we couldn't know who was responsible for this particular cipher. We knew no more than his code name, Reinmar, with which he signed the simpler messages to the East, and Channel, who was a romantic little chap for all his science, had got it into his head that it was a woman— he used to describe her to me as if he had seen her, a she-devil, young, beautiful, with a much-painted white face and eyes like a cobra's. I fancy he read a rather low class of novel in his off-time. My picture was different. 
At first I thought of the historic type of scientist, the ruthless brain type, with a high forehead and a jaw puckered like a chimpanzee. But that didn't seem to work, and I settled on a picture of a first-class Generalstabsoffizier, as handsome as Falkenhayn, trained to the last decimal, absolutely passionless, with a mind that worked with the relentless precision of a fine machine. We all of us at the time suffered from the bogey of this kind of German, and when things were going badly, as in March 18, I couldn't sleep for hating him. The infernal fellow was so watertight and armor-plated, a Goliath who scorned the pebbles from our feeble slings. Well, to make a long story short, there came a morning in September 18, when P.Y. was about the most important thing in the world. It mattered enormously what Germany was doing in Syria, and we knew that it was all in P.Y. Every morning a pile of the intercepted German wireless messages lay on Channel's table, which were as meaningless to him as a child's scrawl. I was prodded by my chiefs, and in turn I prodded Channel. We had a week to find the key to the cipher, after which things must go on without us, and if we had failed to make anything of it in eighteen months of quiet work, it didn't seem likely that we would succeed in seven feverish days. Channel nearly went off his head with overwork and anxiety. I used to visit his dingy little room and find him fairly grizzled and shrunken with fatigue. This isn't a story about him, though there is a good story which I may tell you another time. As a matter of fact, we won on the post. P.Y. made a mistake. One morning we got a long message dated Eau Claire, then a very short message, and then a third message about the same as the first. The second must mean, your message of today's date unintelligible. Please repeat. The regular formula. This gave us a translation of a bit of the cipher. Even that would not have brought it out, and for twelve hours Channel was on the verge of lunacy, till it occurred to him that Reinmar might have signed the long message with his name, as we used to do sometimes in cases of extreme urgency. He was right and within three hours of the last moment operations could give us, we had the whole thing pat. As I have said, that is a story worth telling, but it is not this one. We had finished the war too tired to think of much except that the darn thing was over. But Reinmar had been so long our unseen but constantly pictured opponent that we kept up a certain interest in him. We would like to have seen how he took the licking, for he must have known that we had licked him. Mostly, when you lick a man at a game, you rather like him, but I didn't like Reinmar. In fact, I made him a sort of compost of everything I had ever disliked in a German. Channel stuck to his she-devil theory, but I was pretty certain that he was a youngish man with an intellectual arrogance which his country's debacle would in no way lessen. He would never acknowledge defeat. It was highly improbable that I should ever find out who he was, but I felt that if I did, and met him face to face, my dislike would be abundantly justified. As you know, for a year or two after the armistice I was a pretty sick man. Most of us were. We hadn't the fillip of getting back to civilized comforts like the men in the trenches. We had always been comfortable enough in body, but our minds were fagged out, and there is no easy cure for that. My digestion went nobly to pieces, and I endured a miserable space of lying in bed and living on milk and olive oil. After that 
I went back to work, but the darn thing always returned, and every leech had a different regime to advise. I tried them all, dry meals, a snack every two hours, lemon juice, sour milk, starvation, knocking off tobacco, but nothing got me more than halfway out of the trough. I was a burden to myself and a nuisance to others, dragging my wing through life with a constant pain in my tummy. More than one doctor advised an operation, but I was cherry about that, for I had seen several of my friends operated on for the same mischief and left as sick as before. Then a man told me about a German fellow called Christoph, who was said to be very good at handling my trouble. The best hand at diagnosis in the world, my informant said, no fads, treated every case on its merits, a really original mind. Dr. Christoph had a modest kurhaus at a place called Rosensee in the Sächsischen Schweiz. By this time I was getting pretty desperate, so I packed a bag and set off for Rosensee. It was a quiet little town at the mouth of a narrow valley, tucked in under wooded hills, a clean, fresh place with open channels of running water in the streets. There was a big church with an onion spire, a Catholic seminary, and a small tanning industry. The courthouse was halfway up a hill, and I felt better as soon as I saw my bedroom, with its bare, scrubbed floors and its wide veranda looking up into a forest glade. I felt still better when I saw Dr. Christoph. He was a small man with a grizzled beard, a high forehead, and a limp, rather like what I imagine the Apostle Paul must have been. He looked wise, as wise as an old owl. His English was atrocious, but even when he found that I talked German fairly well, he didn't expand in speech. He would deliver no opinion of any kind until he had had me at least a week under observation. But somehow I felt comforted, for I concluded that a first-class brain had got to work on me. The other patients were mostly Germans with a sprinkling of Spaniards, but to my delight I found Channel. He also had been having a thin time since we parted. Nerves were his trouble, general nervous debility and perpetual insomnia, and his college had given him six months' leave of absence to try to get well. The poor chap was as lean as a sparrow, and he had the large, dull eyes and the dry lips of the sleepless. He had arrived a week before me, and like me was under observation. But his vetting was different from mine, for he was a mental case, and Dr. Christoph used to devote hours to trying to unriddle his nervous tangles. "'He's a good man for a German,' said Channel, "'but he is on the wrong track. There's nothing wrong with my mind. I wish he'd stick to violet rays and massage instead of asking me silly questions about my great-grandmother.' Channel and I used to go for invalidish walks in the woods, and we naturally talked about the years we had worked together. He was living mainly in the past, for the war had been the great thing in his life, and his professorial duties seemed trivial by comparison. As we tramped among the withered bracken and heather, his mind was always harking back to the dingy little room where he had smoked cheap cigarettes and worked fourteen hours out of the twenty-four. In particular, he was as eagerly curious about our old antagonist, Reinmar, as he had been in 1918. He was more positive than ever that she was a woman, and I believe that one of the reasons that had induced him to try a cure in Germany was a vague hope that he might get on her track. I had almost forgotten about the thing, and I was amused by Channel in the part of the untiring sleuth-hound. 
"'You won't find her in the Kurhaus,' I said. "'Perhaps she is in some old schloss in the neighborhood, "'waiting for you like the sleeping beauty.' "'I'm serious,' he said plaintively. "'It is purely a matter of intellectual curiosity, "'but I confess I would give a great deal to see her face to face. "'After I leave here I thought of going to Berlin to make some inquiries. "'But I'm handicapped, for I know nobody, and I have no credentials. "'Why don't you?' who have a large acquaintance and far more authority, take the thing up. I told him that my interest in the matter had flagged, and that I wasn't keen on digging into the past, but I promised to give him a line to our military attaché if he thought of going to Berlin. I rather discouraged him from letting his mind dwell too much on events in the war. I said that he ought to try to bolt the door on all that had contributed to his present breakdown. "'That is not Dr. Christoph's opinion,' he said emphatically. He encourages me to talk about it. You see, with me it is a purely intellectual interest. I have no emotion in the matter. I feel quite friendly towards Reinmar, whoever she may be. It is, if you like, a piece of romance. I haven't had so many romantic events in my life that I want to forget this. Have you told Dr. Christoph about Reinmar? I asked. Yes, he said, and he was mildly interested. You know the way he looks at you with his solemn gray eyes. I doubt if he quite understood what I meant, for a little provincial doctor, even though he is a genius in his own line, is not likely to know much about the ways of the great general staff. I had to tell him, for I have to tell him all my dreams, and lately I have taken to dreaming about Reinmar. "'What's she like?' I asked. "'Oh, a most remarkable figure. Very beautiful, but uncanny. She has long fair hair down to her knees.' Of course I laughed. "'You're mixing her up with the Valkyries,' I said. "'Lord, it would be an awkward business if you met that she-dragon in the flesh.' But he was quite solemn about it, and declared that his waking picture of her was not in the least like his dream. He rather agreed with my nonsense about the old Schloss. He thought that she was probably some penniless grandee, living solitary in a moated grange, with nothing now to exercise her marvellous brain on, and eating her heart out with regret and shame.' He drew so attractive a character of her that I began to think that Channel was in love with a being of his own creation, till he ended with, but all the same she's utterly damnable. She must be, you know. After a fortnight I began to feel a different man. Dr. Christoph thought he had got on the track of the mischief, and certainly, with his deep massage and a few simple drugs, I had more internal comfort than I had known for three years. He was so pleased with my progress that he refused to treat me as an invalid. He encouraged me to take long walks into the hills, and presently he arranged for me to go out roebuck shooting with some of the local Junkers. I used to start before daybreak on the chilly November mornings and drive to the top of one of the ridges where I would meet a collection of sportsmen and beaters shepherded by a fellow in a green uniform. We lined out along the ridge and the beaters, assisted by a marvellous collection of dogs, including the sporting dachshund, drove the road towards us. It wasn't very cleverly managed, for the deer generally broke back, and it was chilly waiting in the first hours with the powdering of snow on the ground and the fir boughs heavy with frost crystals. But later, when the sun grew stronger, it was a very pleasant mode of spending a day. There was not much of a bag, but whenever a row or a capercailzy fell, all the guns would assemble and drink little glasses of Kirschwasser. 
I had been lent a rifle, one of those appalling contraptions which are double-barreled shotguns and rifles in one, and to transpose from one form to the other requires a mathematical calculation. The rifle had a hair trigger, too, and when I first used it I was nearly the death of a respectable Saxon peasant. We all ate our midday meal together, and in the evening, before going home, we had coffee and cakes in one or other of the farms. The party was an odd mixture, big farmers and small squires, an hotel-keeper or two, a local doctor and a couple of lawyers from the town. At first they were a little shy of me, but presently they thawed, and after the first day we were good friends. They spoke quite frankly about the war in which every one of them had had a share, and with a great deal of dignity and good sense. I learned to walk in Sikkim, and the little Saxon hill seemed to me inconsiderable but they were too much for most of the guns, and instead of going straight up or down a slope, they always chose a circuit which gave them an easy gradient. One evening, when we were separating as usual, the beaters taking a shortcut and the guns a circuit, I felt that I wanted exercise, so I raced the beaters downhill, beat them soundly, and had the better part of an hour to wait for my companions before we adjourned to the farm for refreshment. The beaters must have talked about my pace, for as we walked away one of the guns, a lawyer called Meissen, asked me why I was visiting Rosensee at a time of year when few foreigners came. I said I was staying with Dr. Christoph. "'Is he then a private friend of yours?' he asked. I told him no, that I had come to his courthouse for treatment, being sick. His eyes expressed polite skepticism. He was not prepared to regard as an invalid a man who went down a hill like an avalanche. But as we walked in the frosty dusk he was led to speak of Dr. Christoph, of whom he had no personal knowledge, and I learned how little honor a prophet may have in his own country. Rosenzee scarcely knew him except as a doctor who had an inexplicable attraction for foreign patients. Meissen was curious about his methods and the exact diseases in which he specialized. "'Perhaps he may yet save me a journey to Hamburg,' he laughed. "'It is well to have a skilled physician at one's doorstep. The doctor is something of a hermit, and except for his patience does not appear to welcome his kind. Yet he is a good man, beyond doubt, and there are those who say that in the war he was a hero.' This surprised me, for I could not imagine Dr. Christoph in any fighting capacity, apart from the fact that he must have been too old.' I thought that Meissen might refer to work in the base hospitals. But he was positive. Dr. Christoph had been in the trenches. The limping leg was a war wound. I had had very little talk with the doctor, owing to the case being free from nervous complications. He would say a word to me morning and evening about my diet, and pass the time of day when we met. But it was not till the very eve of my departure that we had anything like a real conversation." He sent a message that he wanted to see me for not less than one hour, and he arrived with a batch of notes from which he delivered a kind of lecture on my case. Then I realized what an immense amount of care and solid thought he had expended on me. He had decided that his diagnosis was right, my rapid improvement suggested that, but it was necessary for some time to observe a simple regime and to keep an eye on certain symptoms. So he took a sheet of notepaper from the table and in his small, precise hand wrote down for me a few plain commandments. There was something about him, the honest eyes, the mouth which looked as if it had been compressed in suffering, 
the air of grave goodwill which I found curiously attractive. I wished that I had been a mental case like Channel and had had more of his society. I detained him in talk, and he seemed not unwilling. By and by we drifted to the war, and it turned out that Meissen was right. Dr. Christoph had gone as a medical officer in November 14 to the Ypres salient with a Saxon regiment and had spent the winter there. In 15 he had been in Champagne and in the early months of 16 at Verdun till he was invalided with rheumatic fever. That is to say, he had had about 17 months of consecutive fighting in the worst areas with scarcely a holiday, a pretty good record for a frail little middle-aged man. His family was then at Stuttgart, his wife and one little boy. He took a long time to recover from the fever, and after that was put on home duty. Till the war was almost over, he said, almost over, but not quite. There was just time for me to go back to the front and get my foolish leg hurt. I must tell you that whenever he mentioned his war experience, it was with a comical, deprecating smile, as if he agreed with anyone who might think that gravity like his should have remained in bed. I assumed that this home duty was medical until he said something about getting rusty in his professional work. Then it appeared that it had been some job connected with intelligence. I am reputed to have a little talent for mathematics, he said. No, I'm no mathematical scholar, but if you understand me, I have a certain mathematical aptitude. My mind has always moved happily among numbers. Therefore, I was set to construct and interpret ciphers, a strange interlude in the noise of war. I sat in a little room and excluded the world, and for a little I was happy. He went on to speak of the enclave of peace in which he had found himself, and as I listened to his gentle, monotonous voice, I had a sudden inspiration. I took a sheet of notepaper from the stand, scribbled the word Reinmar on it, and shoved it towards him. I had a notion, you see, that I might surprise him into helping Channel's researches. But it was I who got the big surprise. He stopped thunderstruck as soon as his eye caught the word blushed scarlet over every inch of his face and bald forehead, seemed to have difficulty in swallowing, and then gasped. How did you know? I hadn't known, and now that I did, the knowledge left me speechless. This was the loathly opposite for which Channel and I had nursed our hatred. When I came out of my stupefaction, I found that he had recovered his balance and was speaking slowly and distinctly, as if he were making a formal confession. "'You were among my opponents. That interests me deeply. I often wondered. You beat me in the end. You are aware of that.' I nodded. "'Only because you made a slip,' I said. "'Yes, I made a slip. I was to blame, very gravely to blame, for I let my private grief cloud my mind.' He seemed to hesitate, as if he were loath to stir something very tragic in his memory. "'I think I will tell you,' he said at last. "'I have often wished—it is a childish wish—to justify my failure to those who profited by it. My chiefs understood, of course, but my opponents could not. In that month when I failed I was in deep sorrow. I had a little son. His name was Reinmar. You remember that I took the name for my code signature.' His eyes were looking beyond me into some vision of the past. 
He was, as you say, my mascot. He was all my family, and I adored him. But in those days food was not plentiful. We were no worse off than many million Germans, but the child was frail. In the last summer of the war he developed tysis due to malnutrition, and in September he died. Then I failed my country, for with him some virtue seemed to depart from my mind. You see, my work was, so to speak, his also, as my name was his, and when he left me he took my power with him. So I stumbled. The rest is known to you. He sat staring beyond me, so small and lonely that I could have howled. I remember putting my hand on his shoulder and stammering some platitude about being sorry. We sat quite still for a minute or two, and then I remembered Channel. Channel must have poured his views of Reinmar into Dr. Christoph's ear. I asked him if Channel knew. A flicker of a smile crossed his face. Indeed, no. And I will exact from you a promise never to breathe to him what I have told you. He is my patient, and I must first consider his case. At present he thinks that Reinmar is a wicked and beautiful lady whom he may some day meet. That is romance, and it is good for him to think so. If he were told the truth, he would be pitiful, and in her channel's condition it is important that he should not be vexed with such emotions as pity. You've been listening to The Loathly Opposite by John Buchan. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. Let me know what stories or authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe. All the best. (music) 